bringing car number two. Yep. We usually uh. Yeah. Well, one more one more kid would have done it, George. One more kid would have done it. If we had had six, that would have been it. Because our van technically seats eight, but I don't know how that could have been. Yeah, your, your internet probably is pretty zippy in Florida. 
attention. Yeah, that, yeah. that might be. So we might be. Have to worry about getting sick or something. Down there. Do you want to go pray? It has your name on it, and it's in the center. If you take and drag from the other one, it's sweet. But it's sweeter, you don't like it. Did you bring the sweeter in? Huh? I don't need it. I put the one in my How are you guys? Great.
Good morning. Let's go over a couple of announcements. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Exodus 24, verse 7. Uh, look at our memorial service for Suzanne Riffle. It has been moved from the 10th to the 9th, uh, 6 p.m. Uh, you can read all the particulars down there. That's still on for the 9th, brother? Yes. Okay. And if uh, we have any concerns about it or want to, to add something, you can either contact you or... One of the deacons? Sign-up sheet? Okay. She's on top of it. Um, you got uh, the offering envelopes in the, in the box. Uh, Andrea, the contact. Our new days of praise booklets are here, and acts and facts. Uh, they look pretty interesting as well. Uh, make yourself mindful of our uh, prayer needs and our uh, people that are under doctor's care. Our scripture for meditation is the book of Exodus, chapter 24. And that's page 124 in our Pew Bible. Brother? Well, as, as Baptists, we enjoy that. <laughs> We're good at it. So, But the sound, Google the sound. There are the folks that are going to be here. Or Rob Mills. Rob Mills. Okay. All right. Chapter 24 in the book of Exodus.
Would you stand with us, please, as we begin our service and prayer? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, as we come before you, we pray, Lord, that you would purify our hearts, that all that we ask of you, Lord, would be for our good and your glory. We ask, Lord, as a congregation, that you would endeavor to delight in the prayers that we send to you, that you would be happy to answer them, and that you would find favor with them. Find favor with us as well this hour, O Lord. Be with us, watch over and protect us, guide our thoughts, guide our speech. But Lord, let us look directly to you in all things. For our pastor, we pray that you would give him continued strength, <coughs> wisdom, clarity of thought, courage to stand for you as you have for us. And Lord, give him the strength to continue on. Let the words that come from his lips that fall upon the, the ears of those who would be within hearing distance, Lord. Let those words convict the lost. But let it also, Lord, give us reassurance as your children, as your saved ones, as you're called out. We pray, Lord, that as your sons and daughters in Christ, you would strengthen us and give us the resolve to continue on, to be given strength, to have courage to stand against the tide of a derisive world that seeks to undo us. Lord, in all things, we pray your consistency in our lives. We pray that your Holy Spirit guides our steps and our thoughts and our actions. Watch over us this hour, Father. Protect us. Draw the lost to you and save whom you will. And Lord, have your hand upon each and every one of us. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, amen. Please stand. You take your brown hymnal this morning and turn to number 588, 588 in the brown. Thank you. 
Thank you. You may be seated. Oh, Naomi. I see you. Naomi. <clears throat> Do you know what number it is? God has made the earth. Not in the brown. One thirty three in the red. One three one thirty three in the red. And why this song this morning? Are six verses. Well, she knows it. <laughs> he, he might. Well, that's all you got. All right. Be my first note, please. Yes, please. We play it through.
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of John, chapter 4, verses 14 through 36. That's page 1651 in your pew Bible. When you're ready, if you would please stand as we do the reading. John chapter 4, verses 14 through 36. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, who was called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then... Leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. 
Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would accept this reading and that you would bless it to our souls, to our minds, and our hearts. In the name of Christ, amen. Take your brown hymnals again and turn to number 349 in the brown.
That's good. Our scripture text this morning is John chapter 4. Last Lord's Day, we studied what is called in theology the normative principle of worship. The normative principle teaches that whatever is not prohibited in Scripture is permitted in worship so long as it is agreeable to the peace and unity of the church. We learn that this changed the paradigm of worship. That's not a good statement. It changed it from the regulative principle. Say, well, what's the regulative principle? This is a principle which has as its foundations the scriptures alone. It reads, the public worship of God should include those and only those elements that are instituted, commanded, or appointed by command or example in the Bible. That's a totally different definition. The normative principle is ready to okay anything that God does not Specifically prohibit. Wow. The regulative principle is ready to okay only what God's word specifies or models. It's like 180 degree opposite. And by model is meant the patterns of worship that we find in the Bible. For example, uh, musical instruments. There's no command to inculcate such in our worship, but... When we study the worship models of Israel, we discover in the Bible a number of musical instruments, for example, that they employed in their worship. We discover singers in the Old Testament, choirs, vocal exclamations like shouts of joy, that type of thing from the people in their worship. The problem of the normative principle is that it's too broad and it lends itself to the whims of men and their own personal tastes, which often violate the two characteristics God looks for in all of worship. What are those two characteristics? Number one, approaching God, we must approach him in holiness. And number two, we are to approach him with honor or respect due the person, his person and character. So think of the two H's, honor and holiness. That's how we approach God. We don't come bebopping into the presence of God as though he were just a buddy. I've heard that expression, the man upstairs. Boy, that's so offensive to me. Uh, and I'm, if it's offensive to me, I wonder what, how offensive it must be to God to, to take liberties like that and dis- discuss God as though he were just some bar buddy. Uh, no. We discover that God is one. He is not two. He the the God of the New Covenant is identical to the God of the Old Testament. No difference. So he judges presumptuous worshipers. case of Ananias and Sapphira in the church, that's the New Testament, struck dead because of their sinful worship, as he did with Nadab and Abihu in the Old Testament, for offering unauthorized fire in worshiping God. 
So what I'm saying in all of that is God hasn't changed. He, doesn't, he never changes. He's the same today forever. So the God of the Old Testament, which people say, oh, yeah, he was so austere, he was tough, he was so, you know, uh, remote and distant. But the God of the New Testament, he's love, he's compassion, he's kind, he's considerate. And they're trying to paint two gods. There's no two gods. There's only one God. And that's the one that we have in the scriptures. Well, in today's study, we want to consider the fact that God seeks for worshipers. God seeks for worshipers. As we come to our study, let's ask for the Lord's enablement. Heavenly Father, send your spirit upon us. Phil's already prayed for that. but We pray for it again. We need the Holy Spirit. He's the teacher of the Word of God. We can read the words, yes. We have our Bibles before us. Thank you for preserving the scriptures through all the centuries of those that tried to burn the scriptures out of existence, persecuted Christians. But here today, we still have the scriptures in front of us. So we are thankful for that. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to consider to take seriously the scriptures and may the spirit of God be our teacher we can read the words but to understand the spiritual meanings we need the power of the Holy Spirit so come O Lord Jesus and we know it's your spirit that comes bless us with your presence we ask in Jesus name Amen our text is John 4 deals with the case of this Samaritan woman. Returning to his home country of Galilee, our text says, verse 4, this is referring to Jesus, he had to go through Samaria. It's a very interesting little statement. He had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria named Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour would be noon, high noon. Now, my question is, why does John tell us that Jesus had to go through Samaria. There were credibly other ways for people traveling from Judea to Galilee. For the Jews, they made it a point not to travel through Samaria to get from point A to point B. If you have any Bible maps in your Bible, you might want to turn, just take a quick peek there. The most public route would be to go due north through Samaria, and you would arrive at Galilee. But the Jews were not looking for ease of travel. They were looking for non-interaction in their travel. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, they didn't want to talk to these or confront these people called the Samaritans. 
Here Jesus spoke, verse 9, to the Samaritan woman after her arrival at the well. And what was her response? It was this. You are a Jew. She's speaking to Jesus. You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Now, this has nothing to do with courtesy. It has to do with prejudice and protocol. And John says, it's a little parenthesis in the NIV, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. That kind of explains why she says, how you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman, how can you ask me for a drink? In the NIV, this last statement is in parenthesis. It's John's explanation of the woman's statement for readers who might not be Greek and therefore not comprehend the woman's meaning. How can you ask me for a drink? There's the tension here. It's not racial, it's theological tension. So I'm sure there is some racial tension associated with it we are witnessing here in this woman's keen perception of the hatred and prejudice the jews of her day had towards samaritans well why and this animosity was so acute that instead of traveling due north through judea to get to galilee check your map there in your bible you want to get to to galilee the quickest way just go north out of Jerusalem, go through Galilee, or go through Samaria, and you'll come to Galilee. No, they wouldn't do that. This animosity was so acute that instead of traveling due north from Judea through Samaria, the Jews would cross the Jordan River somewhere east of Jerusalem, travel north through the ancient tribal territories of Gad and Manasseh, And then once far enough north of Samaria, they would recross the Jordan River and enter Galilee. So if you can think of it like, here's the Jordan River, and down here's Jerusalem. Up here's where they want to go. Just go through Samaria and you'll get to Galilee. Uh Uh-uh. They go across the river down here, up through the tribes of Gad and Manasseh, and then cross back over. So it's kind of like a use set aside and that added that added uh, hours of travel and heartache in their travel where did they come up with it why did the Jews hate the Samaritans well there are two main reasons Samaritans were former former Jews who intermarried with Assyrian Gentiles. Ooh, not good. Nehemiah writes about this. I rebuked them and I called curses down on them. I beat some of the men with poles. And I pulled out their hair and I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You're not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, 
nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations there were no, was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all of Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing this terrible wickedness again and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? Nehemiah 13, verse 25 through 27. Now this has nothing to do with, um, oh, the person's an Italian or a Spanish person or anything. It has to do with the religious differences between women that are called foreign women, pagan women, and Israel's women. And in this case, the men of Israel marrying foreign women. From where did these foreign women come? Well, let me read it for you from 2 Kings 17, verse 21, 24. Excuse me. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kuthna, Ava, Hamath, Shevaram, and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. They took over Samaria and lived in its towns. 2 Kings 17, verse 24. had to do with their captivity. And when the Assyrians decided to repopulate Israel again, Yes, the Jews were allowed to go back. Not all of them did go back. Some of them did. But what the Assyrian king did was he took foreign women and sent them in and they were the ones that were there that repopulated. Now when the Assyrians captured Israel's northern tribes, which is about 722 B.C., the towns of Samaria were in need of repopulating. So the king of Assyria repopulated, okay, those Jewish settlements, but he repopulated them with foreign nationalities. Not every last Jew had been deported. So the, the, the Samaritans, the people group, which was half Jew, half Gentile, that's what they were, the Orthodox Jews, therefore, hated these half-breeds and considered them to be traitors. And you got this conflict going on in Palestine. The more serious breach of relationship came when the Samaritans set up their own religion contrary to the worship of Jehovah in Jerusalem. Remember this in your scriptures. This was intentionally done after the division of the kingdom when Jeroboam, a ruler opposed to Solomon's son set up two golden calves, one in Bethel, one in Dan, for the specific purpose of keeping the Israelites from traveling to Jerusalem to worship in Jerusalem to worship with Judah. So a lot of political stuff going on here. Wow. A lot of heartache. The woman at the well in our text alludes to Mount Gerizim in verse 20, where one of the worship centers had been built. 
By the time of the deportation and later the repatriatism, the exiles were free to return. We are told they worshiped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. To this day, they persist in their former practices. They neither worship the Lord nor adhere to the decrees and ordinances, the laws and commands that the Lord gave the descendants of Jacob, whom he named Israel. 2 Kings 17, verse 33 and 34. So you have this mixed bag going on. Samaritans were hated for intermarrying with Gentiles. They were literally half-breeds, half-Jew, half-Gentile. But, here's the point, they were hated more for their idolatry. Their idolatry. All of this plays an important role in the background of Jesus' interaction with this Samaritan woman at the well. She's not a favored person in the Jewish culture at all because of this racial tension, this spiritual tension, this separation in terms of religion and faith. So we might ask, well, if all this is so, why then did Jesus talk to this woman? He's a Jew. He's talking to her at the well. Wouldn't it be more appropriate for him to comply with the protocol of non-association that the Jews had constructed to keep themselves pure, devoid from idolatry? Well, this is where we learn that Jesus' pattern in all of his ministry was to seek lost sinners. Regardless of race, regardless of spiritual differences, regardless of religion, he made the deliberate itinerary of travel through Samaria from Judah instead of going our horseshoe round across and coming up the other side. Look at your Bible map again, you'll discover that Sychar is at the foot of Mount Gerizim, about halfway between Judah and Galilee, smack in the middle of Samaria. The Samaritans are not seeking out Jesus, but he is seeking out them. This is not where the religious elite would be found ministering, but it is where Jesus is found ministering. And it's by design. It is not accident. He is always seeking his people. We read the account in Mark chapter 2. It says, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house. Levi is another name for Matthew. The disciple. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house. Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Mark 2, verse 15 through 17. What a rebuke to them. You guys, in your ministry, what do you do? You just hobnob with the upper class of society. But how, what good is your religion doing to the normal people of the, of the culture? I'm seeking sinners. When Zacchaeus, another tax collector like Matthew, was singled out of the crowd to host Jesus for dinner, we are told, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. Luke 19, verse 8 through 10. So what we're learning here is you're not going to find Jesus in the palaces. You're not going to find him in high society, generally speaking. He's going to be among the common folk, the people that we deal with and who we are every day. Again, we read in Luke 15, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and he loses just one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and he says to them, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Luke 15, verses 4 through 7. Does that give you a, a feel for the heart of Christ? He's after that one sinner who's going to repent. The 99 that are already in the fold, yeah, it's not, he's not saying he doesn't care for them. But they're already been brought into the fold. He has sought them and brought them in. But that's not enough. He wants to go after that yet that other one that's out there, that one more. And when that one is brought in, there's another one that he needs to go after. And when after person is in, there's another one to go. There's ever this seeking that's going on. The lost, the spiritually sick, those who know and acknowledge that they are sinners. This was the stomping ground of Jesus' ministry, and may it always be the stomping ground and witness of our ministry as well. We are comfortable with one another because we know the Lord. But I hope you will interact in your day-to-day -day life with your neighbors and friends and relatives who don't know the Lord. You need to interact with people who are self-righteous and will not admit their need of God's grace to enter heaven. You need to testify to those who see themselves as good people. 
worthy of glory, who view themselves as a notch or two above the ordinary Joe Schmo of the street and are not favorably disposed to the gospel, they need to hear the gospel. They do not see themselves in need of forgiveness because in their mind they have not done anything wrong. At least nothing bad enough to earn hell. If they are wealthy, money is their God and they think they can buy themselves a home in heaven by contributing to a Christian project or by carrying out some benevolence to the poor and needy thus proving to themselves that they are as good a man as Jesus ever was. It is the Pharisee and the sinner praying in the temple all over again. Remember that account? The Pharisee stood up and he prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even eh, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. See, he's very pleased with himself. He sees himself miles ahead of and morally more pure than the tax collector standing behind him in the shadows. But, the scripture says, but... The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. I tell you, said Jesus, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 18, verse 11 and following. Now, brethren, that's not to say that God never saves the affluent or the influential of society. But it is to say, as Paul wrote to the Corinthian assembly, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and following. You know, the rich, the powerful, the influential, they're always boasting of what they know, what they can do, what they own. And because of this, they are generally, generally now arrogant towards God. But the weak, the lowly, the despised, they know their sin and they're humble towards God. 
If you read that text and you think about that, it might put a perspective in your life that changes some things. I've thought it, shamefully. Oh, if I just had more money. If I just had more of this, more of that. But Paul says, well, what if you had the more, the more, the more? And you were bankrupt spiritually. Would you really be ahead? Would you really have prospered? We do know that those that are affluent are generally arrogant towards God. So this is why Jesus was in Samaria. There was a sinner woman there whom he intended to save. No Pharisee, no priest, no scribe, no upstanding citizen of the community, no church-going, Bible-believing devotee of God. None of that. True, she was religious, but she was nonetheless lost. She could talk the party line about worship and prophets and scriptures, but she knew none of these things in her heart. They were just so much God words and religious banner to try to snow the stranger who was sitting there alongside of the well. But he wouldn't allow her to do it. He stripped away every pretense. Think about this. What was the woman's great need? Well, she didn't need a pep talk on the value of religion in her life. She didn't need a receptive ear to hear her tale of life's hard knocks. And she had plenty of those to talk about. She didn't need a pat on the back and a helping hand towards self-reformation. What she needed was repentance and faith. What she needed was for the Savior of sinners to open her eyes to her great sin. What she needed was an unconditional pardon from sin and the assurance of forgiveness and life eternal. Like that lost sheep, She needed to be found and rescued from herself and her wayward thinking and actions. So how did Jesus respond to her? Well, he answered her like this. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. John 4 verse 10. If you knew. (laughs) But she doesn't know. She doesn't know. People are lost and they're steeped in their ignorance. They're looking for help in all the wrong places. And in all of this, they believe that they can 
They can, they can figure it out if, if you just give them a little more time. But they'll never figure it out, their need or their cure because of the bias of their hearts. Paul writes it this way, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Romans 8, verses 5 through 8. These are insurmountable barriers, every one of them. Insurmountable. Or so we think. A dead mind to spiritual things, a hostile mind towards God, seems like a recipe for disaster with no hope or escape. But God out of the picture. Why was this Samaritan woman at Jacob's well at high noon in the heat of the day? There's a question for you. Nobody went fetching water at high noon in Palestine. No one in their countries like this would fetch their water when it was 100 degrees or more. She's there in the heat of the day because she expected that no one else would be there. She anticipated privacy. She wanted unanimity. She did not want to be seen. She desired no conversation. She was secretive and full of secrets. But the community knew her sordid past. Jesus told her, so call your husband and come back here. But she answered, I have no husband. Truly, he said, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you have had five husbands and the man you're now living with is not your husband. Verse 17. Ooh. This stranger is um, getting a little personal here. Yeah, she had gone through husband, five husbands like people go through paper towels. She had used them and tossed them away until she got to the point where it seemed useless and meaningless to pledge Another I do at the altar anymore. Might just as well live with the guy and forget the marriage vows. That's where she was now in her state of life. Her life was satiated with sexual indulgence and immorality. She knew it. Oh, and the town folk knew it too. She didn't want to have anything to do 
with them, <laughs> and they didn't want to have anything to do with the town tramps. So high noon seemed to be the best time to be at the well if one wanted to avoid interaction, because no one came out to draw water at high noon in the heat of the day. Well, so little did she know that transformation of such a radical and thorough nature awaited her at Jacob's well in the promise of the Savior, namely this, everyone who drinks this water, this well water, said Jesus, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I will give him will never thirst. Instead, the water I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Chapter 4, verse 13. And her response was, Oh, sir, <laughs> give me this water. Whoa. I'll take it if you give it. Well, she asked for it. Though she didn't know what she was asking for. Jesus' response had hit a nerve with this woman. How is it that this perfect stranger knew so much about her past? How did he know about her previous failed marriages and the fact that her present roommate was not her husband? This was unsettling to her, to say the least. This stranger at the well is reading her life like a book. Her deep, dark secrets aren't secret anymore. She's uncomfortable. She's being exposed like that. And by a Jew, oh no, a Jew of all persons. Who's this guy? Where did he get all this personal information about her? He's just a traveling Jew. No one in Sychar knew him or had talked to him. Where did he come from? Why is he here? Where is he going? Why have I confronted, been confronted? And as she thought about all of this, she arrived at a reasonable, a reasonable explanation. Here it is, verse 19. Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Do you know she's spot on about that? She's spot on. Prophets are given a sixth sense by God called revelation, and as such, they can tell things of the past as well as things of the future, which baffle the ordinary man. Paul says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love us, but God has revealed it to us, the apostles, by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand 
what God has freely given to us. This is what we speak. Not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9 and following. God granting the apostles the truths of the Spirit. And so this Samaritan woman has come up with a reasonable explanation. I say it's reasonable for how Jesus knew so much about her. He must be a prophet. Good for her. She's right on. But she's uncomfortable with this prophet. This prophet is getting too personal. He's revealing too much. He knows all about my five marriages. He knows I'm living with a man that I'm not married to right now. He might be a prophet, but I don't like the fact that he's just opening all these wounds. So she tries a diversion. Verse 20. You know, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, but you Jews claim the place to worship is Jerusalem. How'd that get in? I mean, that's just like, where'd that come from? I think it's nevertheless a bold move. She's willing to take on this prophet by engaging in a religious theme of worship. But it's superficial. It's chit-chat about the place for worship, not about the heart change that must occur for worship. For her, it ought, it's all about what mountain the worship center is located in and see if there were any other essential issues. You know, people do this all the time. They will happily engage you with you on religious themes. Think about this. They will engage with you on religious themes so long as they are considered by you to be knowledgeable players in the discussion. They do not possess the Spirit of God, but they want to discuss spiritual things. They are at odds with God, but they want you to think that they are seekers and therefore worthy of voicing a credible opinion on God, religion, salvation, and so on and so on and so on. You know what I'm talking about. You run, I run in with people like that all the time. Sometimes, this is no more than a fishing expedition. They want to hear what you, how you react. They want to know if you know what you are talking about. They want to discover if there are any loopholes in your arguments, any chinks in your armor, so to speak. The division, or the diversion rather, didn't work with Jesus. He did not play the game the Samaritan woman proposed. Oh, you know, Samaritans think we should worship over here, but you just say it should be in What had that? That had nothing to do with the conversation that Jesus was fomenting. So what was Jesus' rebuttal? How are you going to get a person like that that's trying to sidetrack you? How are they going to get them back on track? Yes, answer honest questions that people voice about the gospel. Yes, be polite, be kind, 
follow Peter's exhortation. In your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that you have. And do this with gentleness and with respect. Yes, yes. 1 Peter 3, verse 15. But that said, remember the warning of the Lord himself. I am sending you out like sheep among what? Among wolves. Therefore be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogue. Matthew 10, verse 16. Or again, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they will trample them under their feet, and then they'll turn and tear you to pieces. Matthew 7, verse 6. Obviously, Jesus had insight into this woman's heart that you and I do not have when dealing with inquisitive people of our day. But we can try to learn to be discerning. We can try to sense the real need behind the words. This woman needed no clarification about an approved geographical setting for worship. That was not what she needed. But she did need to know God. She did need to worship Him. And so Jesus' response was this. Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. He's saying to her, basically, you're ignorant and you're idolatrous. Two things. You're worshiping, but something you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and now has come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. His worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Brethren, that is a call to repentance. He's saying to the Samaritan woman, you don't know what you're talking about. You need to listen to what I'm saying. You need to become a true worshiper of God. You're a Samaritan, yeah, but you don't have a true worship of God. It's idolatrous. So he's calling her to repentance. He's saying, in effect, you talk to me as though you know something about worshiping God, but all you can discuss is geography. But worship is not about geography. It's not about Mount Gerizim, nor Mount Moriah, to name another one, on which Jerusalem was built. No, worship is about the Holy Spirit cleaning up and controlling your life. Worship is about the truth readily available in the Jewish scriptures and in the gospel of the living water that I have presented to you. Dear woman, God is looking for honesty in you. You have sin issues that need to be addressed. You need to repent. You need to believe me when I say, whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. He's changing the paradigm. Getting her away from things like, mm, what mountain, uh, 
what location, uh, everything in the world. Think about our own day. Has anything changed? Well, aren't people thinking the same way today? Well, I go to the church down on the corner. The woman's acknowledgement that maybe, just maybe, this stranger is more than a prophet. Hmm. Look at verse 25. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. You see where the Lord has been moving her? Here's a stranger at the well. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I know that when the Christ comes, the Messiah, he will explain everything. And Jesus said in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. Can just see her jaw dropping. Was this disclosure by Jesus, I am he, enough to move this woman off her religious chit-chat to genuine repentance and faith? Well, <laughs> she ran to town and she told all the town folk her story. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. What was their testimony? He told me everything I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with him. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. John 4 verse 39 and following. Wow. What about you this morning? Do you know and believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world? Have you acknowledged what Jesus told this woman? You worship what you do not know. In other words, you need to repent. You need to see in Jesus more than a prophet. You acknowledge I'm a prophet. Well, that's true, but I'm more than that. I'm more than a teacher of ethics. You do not need a lecture on worship centers. You do not need to know about church steeples and lighting candles and prayer books and giving alms to the poor and contributing to the church you do not need to know anything that makes for religious exercises. But you need to know Jesus as Savior. 
That's why. You need to know him. Not the things people have conjectured about him. You need to stop trying to divert the conversation from the words of Christ revealed in the Bible. Do you dare to listen to him? Do you dare to trust him? God is seeking true worshipers. Are you ready to be found? Ready to repent? Ready to believe? Until you are, salvation will elude you. And God's death sentence will remain on you. My charge today is to flee to Christ. Flee to Christ. Repent and believe the good news. It's great news. That God has sent his son to be the savior of sinners. When we repent and when we believe then, as with the Samaritan woman, all your honest questions will be answered to your satisfaction and to your salvation. People question, 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 question. And their questions can keep them from Christ, not bring them to Christ. Because they're looking for a way out, or they're looking for a way to justify their unbelief. In the end... Christ is who he is. He's God's son. He's the savior of sinners. You can believe it or reject it. But if you reject it, you will spend eternity away from God. Away from everything that you hold precious. In the lives, in the hell of torment. You say, well, why would God do that? Because he's given you the opportunity to hear the gospel and to believe. He's giving you the way out, the only way out, through the cross of Christ. That cross is Jesus dying for his people's sins. God isn't letting us off the hook. He's dealing with every one of our sins. He dealt with my sins. He dealt with George's sins. And he dealt with Terry's sins and Jared's sins. And he deals with our sins. He pays for those sins in the sacrifice of his own son. Not letting us off the hook. That's a wrong view of salvation. The cross is him dying in the place of his people so that you and I can go free. Do you believe that? Do you trust him alone? Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that salvation is all of grace. It's not a little bit of us participating. It's not a partnership in that sense. Even the faith that you require of us, the repentance you require of us, are gifts from God. No man comes unto you except by your drawing them. And when you draw us, we must come. We thank you, Lord, that you didn't just abandon us. You drew us and brought us to the foot of the cross and shed your blood sprinkled your blood upon us I pray that we'll understand this and that we will receive it show us how hideous sin is that God would actually sacrifice his own son that he would see the necessity of doing that in order to make for 
peace for our sin. I pray that we'll come. I thank you today for your great grace. I thank you for the Holy Spirit that makes all these truths true to our hearts. Woo us by your spirit, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn, brethren, is from the Trinity, number 19. 19 in the red hymnal. Number 19, let's stand as we sing. Our Father, we thank you and praise you for your word and for the sacrifice of your cross. <clears throat> if we're righteous, then the cross has nothing to say to us. If we're just good people in your eyes, then the cross has nothing to say to us. But if we are, in fact, what the scripture says, that we are sinners by birth and by practice, then the cross means everything to us. 
Because that sin has to be paid for. And if we're going to stand before a holy and righteous God. If we're going to stand before him in peace. Another hymn that we sing. Jesus paid it all. Yes he did. All to him I owe. Lord how thankful we are. There's not a shred of indebtedness that needs to be paid by us. If we trust in Jesus. It's paid in full through the blood of the cross. We can't add to that. There's nothing we can do to better it. It's the perfect sacrifice. Christ was chosen before the foundations of the world. He was going to be the Lamb of God by your appointment. And we're so thankful for that. Now, Lord, help us to live the Christian life. We have friends. We have neighbors. We have relatives. They don't know anything about God. They think they do. They think they know God. They may even talk about God. They may even pray to God. But they're estranged from Christ. They don't know Jesus. And if they don't know the Son, they don't know the Father. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to testify. And mostly to live out the gospel in front of our watching world. They need to see it. They're, they're not in church this morning. They're not hearing gospel sermons. They're not reading Bibles. They're reading our lives. And I pray that we give a true and honorable testimony. To the glory of Jesus, we ask this in his holy name. Amen. Amen.